welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we talk about storytelling in the face of the greatest story of all time, climate change. I'm Amy Westerbelt. And I'm Mariana East Hegler. And we're so glad to be back with you in earnest. Yes. I'm so glad to be back together for this show. I'm, I, yeah, I, I uh, you know, I floundered. I floundered without you. I did. <laughs> and I floundered without you. Um, yeah. And this episode, we're going to be joined by David Wallace Wells, who is the deputy editor at New York Magazine and the author of The Uninhabitable Earth, both the article and the book. Mm-hmm. And we're really glad to have him here with us. Yeah, it was great to talk to him. I feel like he was the perfect person to have on amidst all the coronavirus stuff, too. Yeah, exactly. So we didn't actually, even though we're in the same city, David and I, we didn't get to like do this in the studio together. Right. We had to do it <laughs> <laughs> by a social distance. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> unfortunately. Oh my God, I need this shit to end so fast. I really, really, really need this. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, but can I make a confession? I always, uh, whenever I see David's um, initials, I always want to call him Darkwing Duck. <laughs> <laughs> because his initials are like DWW. And like, if you grew up in the 90s at all, you remember the cartoon Darkwing Duck? Yes. Dark Queen Duck. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was great to talk to him. I um I really I thought he had some interesting things to say about um of course all of the sort of corona climate intersections, but then mm-hmm. also just about what's been happening with the climate story in general and what's happening yeah. in the political realm this year on climate too. And and actually, you know what? Yeah. It, it, he made me feel a lot better talking about the shift in like attention and urgency around climate in the last couple of years, yeah. which it's easy for me to forget. Sometimes I feel like I'm just constantly like wanting it to be more. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it was yeah. good to like, um, you know, sort of remember that, oh, actually, yeah, we've come a long way in a pretty short amount of time. And like, you know, right. even if we're taking some losses, like it doesn't mean it's yeah. done for good and whatever. So, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And also note that all the articles that we talk about here are going to be linked as always on our Twitter feed, which you can find it at Real Hot Take. Um, And they'll also be posted in our show notes. Um, Yeah. So make sure you read along. Yes. Make sure you're following us on Twitter, because in addition to posting these reading lists, we... I think do a relatively great job of curating all of the climate <laughs> writing that's happening all the time. So it's a good, yeah, good resource. we get all of it. Yeah. Well, most of it. <laughs> we get all the best, yeah. the best stuff. <laughs> right. Um, all right. So ready to dig in? Yep. Let's do it. What drew you to storytelling in general, but really climate storytelling in particular? Well, the thing that brought me to climate change as a subject was just, honestly, it was fear. So I think it's a lot of what a lot of people, not just who are telling these stories, but who are reading them and listening to them have been going through, which is a couple of years ago, I started seeing a lot more news that was really terrifying um, about the future of the climate. And I was piecing it together for myself in a way that made it seem not just like 
a series of um, sort of uh, particular um, discrete threats, but a much more all-encompassing and sort of all-changing force that is likely to dominate um, all of the rest of our lives. And that was just sort of like, you know, destabilizing in the sense of like making me a little weak at the knees, so to speak. Um, and it didn't feel to me at the time, I no longer feel this way. You guys have done a great job talking about it um, in a show in particular, but it didn't feel to me at the time like there were um, that many writers or storytellers out there who were telling, um, who were writing about climate change or talking about climate change um, at that scale or with that scope. Um, and it felt like, to me at least, a real missing um, feature of the conversation that, you know, we knew about particular scientific studies and we knew about particular efforts at resilience and decarbonization, but there was just something really quite big picture that was almost lost um, along the way, which was just, this will be the defining force of the 21st century and beyond, almost no matter what we do. But what we do today, because of that, is going to be incredibly, incredibly consequential. And we can't put off acting in the way that we have. But we also can't put off reckoning with what it will mean to be living on a transformed planet. So, I, you know, I wrote that story in 2017 that was really looking at worst case scenarios. And then that brought me into, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit before, um, that brought me into some conversations with scientists who sort of took issue with what I was doing. And those conversations, which are often were, you know, more like arguments, um, made me just feel even more intensely that like there was um, one aspect of this or one approach to the story that had been sort of closed off and that um, there was, you know, judging just for myself as a reader, there was at least one reader who wanted to read stories written in that tone and that perspective and um, who were poorly served by the sort of prohibition against alarming climate narratives. Okay, so you've talked before about being drawn into the climate story in part. Oh, yeah. Actually, we talked about this, that um, one of the things that you were looking at, too, is just that like none of your competitors were covering climate in in this way that you um, that you had kind of talked about that, you know, no one was looking at the the worst case scenarios. Um, so, you know, time has proven you right. Um, but now it seems like, you know, more outlets are covering the, the climate crisis in kind of increasingly more in different ways. So what do you kind of see when you look around the landscape um, of media now? Well, I think it depends where you're looking. I think in the best um like text journalism, um, I think you're seeing quite good coverage and quite a lot of progress having been made. You know, um, it used to be fair to say that like climate change should be on the front page of the New York Times every day, and like it sort of is now on the front page of the New York Times every day, um, and the Washington Post, and um, you know, other other um, text based outlets. I think have done a quite good job as well, like all 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 the way down through the ecosystem, but. TV news is just so appallingly bad on this still. Um, and, you know, a huge proportion of Americans get their, get, get their news there. Um, and that's really distressing and disconcerting. In terms of the kinds of storytelling, um, I think 
we've had an incredible renaissance in um, it's not just that people are doing more um, clear eyed writing about scary prospects. It's that there's just a lot more climate writing and climate storytelling in general. I mean, this is one of the reasons that your show is such a, um, it's so valuable because it, it's a guide to all of this stuff. Like three years ago, you could not have made this podcast. Like there wouldn't have been enough to talk about. Um, or, or if you were talking about it, it would be like only like obscure things that nobody was reading. And now it really feels like there's so many things to process, even at the very center of our um, sort of journalistic and storytelling um, culture. So that's um, incredibly good news. Um, you know, there are particular small particular parts of the story that I think have been sort of undercovered or underexplored, but not in the same, like I see a major failing um, across the, across the whole culture way that I did a few years ago. What, what how do you guys see it? You know, it's interesting because um, we talked about this um, before that, like on the, like, you know, we, the first few episodes, we tried to look at like what was happening in 2016, 2017, like we went year by year and 2016 was like, pretty easy episode because there really wasn't that much you know getting longer it's like every year oh my god and now like we're we're doing it in real time and we're doing every two weeks and like there's a there's as much to talk about it like every two weeks as there was in like a year in 2016 2017 it's crazy how much it's like exploded and just I don't know how many different ways people are tackling the story now too. It's super interesting. I feel like you're seeing more people kind of reference climate change in stories that aren't maybe explicitly about climate too, you know, like um, I just feel like that's happening more, but it is amazing to me still that the TV folks have not caught up with that. Um, You know, like I think, I don't know, you're still seeing the occasional, you know, American Enterprise Institute spokesperson on cable news talking about climate change, which seems crazy to me. It seems like a time machine. Um, The thing that I always think about is like, just you're covering like a hurricane or some other natural disaster. How do you not, even if you're working simply from the logic of like, we need to, um, we need to, you know, uh, we need to attract and, and, and keep as many viewers as we possibly can. To me, it's like the story of a natural disaster is even more horrifying and gripping if you're like, oh, and by the way, like the future is going to be dominated by these kinds of events, which are going to be coming more and more frequently. And yet every TV producer just totally neglects that um, that part of the story, which from being just a tragedy to being like um, a horrifying portent in a way that I at least I as a viewer, I'm drawn in more by. Um, I was just going to say it's interesting about all of these things in terms of the coverage of coronavirus so you know we're we're seeing i think a a journalistic um response to this story that's unfolding in real time that is in certain ways um heroic and like herculean and people are like you know doing so much to report in incredibly difficult circumstances and writing stories you know spanning the the intimate and personal to like the big and analytic and um, I think we're sort of informed in a kind of unprecedented way, um, you know, compared to anything that even feels close to an equivalent experience in the past. And yet at the same time, it feels like, um, I don't know how you guys feel. I feel unable to process this news um, myself in any systematic way. It feels um, 
incredibly piecemeal, like I'm chasing after little bits of the story, and maybe I just can't get my, my mind around the full scope and scale of it, but um, it feels there has to be some sort of storytelling opportunity or failure uh, in there too. If, if I, you know, it's all I'm reading every day and yet I don't feel like I'm actually, um, I've actually kind of come to grips with it. So David, since you published The Uninhabitable Earth, you've emerged as one of the more visible spokespeople for the climate movement. Um, and how has it felt to enter that space as someone who was like previously pretty behind the scenes as an editor? Um, I think maybe I'm projecting onto you a little bit, um, having made that move myself. Have you drawn any parameters for yourself about what you're comfortable doing or not doing? Well, I mean, I, I feel like there are like a bunch of different questions in there. And the answer to all of them is just like, it's been really weird. Um, I mean, I like, first of all, even hearing you describe me as a... Um, as part of the movement makes me a little uncomfortable because I come to the subject really from a different place from, um, from, you know, from background in journalism and even just temperamentally as someone who is really like an observer, a kind of wallflower rather than um, like a participant who gets into the political fray. Um, on the other hand, also, I also look at the, you know, the, 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 the world we're facing and the future we're facing and what needs to be done to avoid it and think, you know, we probably need, a lot more people to feel dragged into the fray um, than are themselves inclined to be. And, uh, you know, if anybody who is temperamentally disinclined has to play some kind of a role, probably I'm, I should be one of the first since I have sort of stumbled into this sort of platform and profile. Um, but, you know, I still feel myself um, like I have a kind of a, a hybrid identity um in which i you know i feel comfortable like um working with um activists um help you know doing like fundraising and helping them with some of their messaging without actually like feeling comfortable showing up at a rally and like getting behind the mic myself um that may just be a matter of time it may just be like you know some changes take a little while to sink in and i'm still relatively early um but also, you know, in general, when people ask me what they should do if they want to make a difference, I say, like, you know, we need all kinds of different people doing all kinds of different things and, like, um, engaging politically and trying to make, make, make your heard is one of those things. But, you know, you can, you can help those people. You can help the movement in a lot of other ways, too. So maybe it's okay that I'm, I'm mostly still um, working behind a desk as a writer. Then there's also just been the weirdness of, I, I think, Mary, you've had some similar experiences, just the weirdness of being out in public at all, um, sort of independent of the political cause. It's just a little bit emotionally disorienting to see yourself referred to by people who you don't yeah. know <laughs> um, and like be the subject of conversations and essays, yeah. that sort of thing. I hate it. Um, you know, it's not, it's, yeah, it's not something that I ever... Um, expected for myself or wanted for myself um and it, it's gratifying of course in certain ways and it's good to be doing it in the service of a cause i think is important but it's also um you know like you know can make me feel like an imposter and someone who doesn't deserve the attention and um and also um you know just like sort of eerie in the sense that you see you know, this hologram of yourself emerge out into the world that looks like you and, you know, sounds like you and sort of thinks like you, but is not exactly you. And you don't know exactly what your 
ownership over that hologram is because it's not total. Um, it is shaped in, by the way that other people are processing your work, which they should process yeah. your work and come to opinions about you and your work. And nevertheless, you know, still weird. Um, how, how has it been? How, how do you? How would you? How do you? How would each of you answer that question? Um, I was hoping to steal your answer. Um, I. <laughs> Um, I fucking hate it. I really, I, I don't like being a public person. I was really happy being behind a desk um, and being anonymous and basically like telling other people what to go out in public and stay <laughs> while I hid behind them like the puppet master. Um, but that ship has sailed because the things I wanted people say, nobody wanted to say them and I felt like they needed to be said. So I said them. Um, and I sort of drew parameters around things I did and didn't want to do. Like, I don't ever, ever, ever want to go on cable news. That looks like my literal nightmare. Um, there's definitely been times where I've wanted to pull it back, but that feels irresponsible given the moment that we're at. This isn't a vanity project. This is like the, the balance of, of life on earth kind of hangs in the balance and not that I think I myself can save life on earth. Um, but I think that um, you have to do what you can and walking away from the platform feels like a dereliction of duty at this point. Yeah. I um, I would just say that like, I also struggle with this thing. And I mean, I, I feel like I've been, you know, I've been reporting on climate for like 15, oh, like 18, years now and i still feel this weird tension between doing journalism and like being an advocate and i feel like well climate change is like a really tough subject in that regard like it's i don't really feel like you can just stay distant from it you know and yeah i don't know i get asked this a lot because um you know i definitely like come to conclusions (laughs) in, in my in my stories and in the podcast and all that kind of stuff too. And um, I feel, I don't know, I've kind of come to this thing of like, look, if you have a mountain of evidence, then it's, to me, it seems like almost as or more biased to not come to a, to the yeah. like logical conclusion that that evidence points to than, you know, than to just say like, so, you know, here's the evidence and obviously that means xyz you know um so i don't know but i still like i still worry about it and i definitely like i still like go back and delete tweets because i'm worried that it's like ooh, too much you know yeah i will say though like it kind of reminds me this kind of tension about journalists becoming activists it reminds me a lot about like why we had a black press for a really long time in this country because they were seen as self-interested for having opinions on whether or not Jim Crow should exist. And they had those opinions because they wanted to live, right? So <laughs> that's something I've been thinking about a lot too, because the black press existed um, alongside the sort of like muckrakers in the, the early 20th century too. And like a lot of that, I don't know, a lot of the... I don't know. There's been sort of a like a shift away from from like journalists having an antagonistic relationship with um, sort of corporate America that I don't necessarily think is like as objective as it gets painted as. I was just going to say that history is a reminder that what we think of as like the kind of objective professional boundaries of um, this profession 
are were actually erected to keep certain voices and perspectives out as um and to um protect largely protect um the sort of sort of status quo structures of power in our country even when those structures of power were quite oppressive and brutal um totally yeah i mean this whole um the most recent season of drilled is all about like sort of the creation of that machine there was yeah like i i know sort of powerful people i mean you know there's this whole there was this whole thing to it like the dawn of the 20th century where like people in power were very concerned about the idea of like you know sort of the crowd having too much say yeah yeah <laughs> um and and not at all interested in like what we like to pretend is american democracy and like i don't know it, it, it's it's very like yeah the um what gets sort of described as quote unquote objective journalism is yeah. was definitely created to keep to like maintain the status quo power structure so i think like i i i don't know like i sometimes people will be like oh like you know you hate the oil companies i'm like i don't actually like as soon as the oil companies stop misbehaving i'm more than happy to move on to something else <laughs> i fucking hate them i'll hate them forever and i'm fine with that <laughs> Okay, so you're a deputy editor at New York Magazine, um, which gives you some amount of control over the magazine's um, climate coverage, I would imagine. Are you sort of like the guy who is like, you know, the subject matter expert on climate? And, and like, if so, how are you trying to shape the magazine's coverage, which, you know, includes your own reporting? But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say like I, I run it exclusively. Um, you know, it's a pretty big operation. And so we have all these different parts of the um of the company, there's, you know, um, the cut and, um, intelligence are, are both sort of quasi autonomous, um, operations and each of them have people writing about climate in ways that I only sort of touch on incidentally. The stuff I've tried to do in the magazine is just, um, find a place for slightly weirder, stranger, um, less predictable climate stories. So over the last, um, few months, maybe four months, um, published two pieces in the magazine that I think were pretty cool. Um, one was this climate diary by Emily Rabito, um, which she had been sort of keeping over the course of the year on Twitter, which was really just a sort of series of vignettes um, from her, um, her experience, just talking, taking, you know, taking seriously the admonition to talk about climate whenever you're thinking about it, bringing it up in basically every context in her life and sort of recording those conversations. And, that felt in a lot of ways like a piece that um, would have been more naturally at home in like a literary journal than in a um, glossy magazine. But I think it was pretty great um, and pretty great that we were able to do it at, at some real length. Um, and then we published this piece that um, Malcolm Harris wrote about sort of like being invited to um, one of Shell's um, like future planning um, conferences as a consultant, basically. And like discarding the, their rules and writing about it anyway, and um, it wasn't like there were like any huge surprises in that piece about for people who knew about how the oil companies were thinking about the future, but just feeling like you were in the room, I think, was really um, revelatory. And the way, I mean, to get back to what we were talking about a minute ago about journalistic convention, I think there was actually something pretty exciting about the way that that story explicitly discarded the journalistic convention of like 
if you make a promise or an agreement with a source where you have to keep it. And he basically didn't. Um, and, you know, probably um, I should be doing more of that kind of stuff. I should be making more room for these, um, for climate stories in general in the magazine. Um, but it is still a general interest magazine. So we, we, we do a lot of different stuff. And um, I think the kind of exciting thing is to um, find a place for offbeat stories that are differently perspective stories that wouldn't, wouldn't really have a home in other publications of similar stature. Um, and then, you know, the stuff that we do on the website is much more iterative. It's much more, um, you know, writers move according to their own interests much more. It's like less editor driven and more um, sort of from the keyboard up. But I think we've been, we've, we've been doing a relatively good job of covering, um, covering this stuff across the site. Again, we could do more, but um, in general, I think like, you know, um, New York Magazine does like way we live now kind of stories really well. Um, we're not going to be competing with like the New York Times, the Washington Post to be doing like big, um, like direct science reporting. Um, it's much more all of the other adjacent opportunities to do personal essay and to do like big picture kind of um, think pieces and, um, and that sort of thing. Um, and I think, you know, like everybody, we're still learning, but um, I've been trying to deliver more and more of it into what we do. That um, Malcolm Harris piece was my standout piece on our last episode. I thought it was so good. And I was like, oh, man, this is awesome. I love it. I want to take this opportunity to ask about my favorite climate headline ever, which was in New York Magazine last May. Um, Humanity is about to kill one million species in a globe spanning murder suicide. David, did you do you know anything about how that headline came to be or what that moment looked like? I wish I could. I wish I could recall it, but I just it's, just, it's I, I it sounds like a perfect headline. <laughs> it is. It is. I've been obsessed with it ever since I've seen it. But anyway, so what would you like to see change about climate storytelling in two thousand twenty? In twenty twenty. <laughs> well. I'm, I'm curious to know what you guys, how you guys would answer this question. My own feeling is the boring answer is the most important one, which is just that it needs to be elevated in front and center. Um, and, you know, we talked a little bit about before about how much more central climate stuff now seems to be than it was even just a few years ago. And yet we're still dealing yeah. with, you know, presidential debates in which if a climate question is asked, it's at the very end of the debate. It doesn't yet, even though public opinion polls show that Americans care quite a lot more about climate than they did a few years ago, it's still not the case that they care enough about it um, or are prioritizing it in their political choices. And as we're heading into like an unbelievably consequential um, election this November, um, it would be really great if, you know, the, the press that was covering that election made it clear just what kind of climate stakes we're dealing with. I mean, I started writing a couple weeks ago a piece right after Super Tuesday and ended up not publishing it in part just because I got distracted. And then when I had time to turn back to it, it was just, it felt like the news had moved on to um, to the coronavirus. But this, which like about the, you know, the first line of the piece was like, um, there are not many days that you can point to as being like singularly consequential for the future of the planet. And, you know, obviously like, Election Day is going to be, I mean, the point of the piece was like Super Tuesday was sort of one of those because we saw the ex, 
you know, the Sanders campaign extinguished and the Biden um, candidacy basically secured nominations were secured. But yeah. um, the election day is going to be so much more consequential than that. Even if you, you know, even acknowledging all of the limitations yeah. of Joe Biden as a climate, like as the face of climate action and all of the baggage that he brings to the table, like the, even so the differences between these two options are just so, so vastly different. And the importance of the country picking the right one of those two is so, so huge. Somehow Trump is like having a better, um, you know, sort of aid package response on coronavirus than like the fucking Democratic leadership. It's going to make it that much harder to get him out of office. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's sort of I've, my own yeah. feeling is like I, I just can't see a way that he really survives this. Um, on the other hand, November is like five centuries from now. It's like in at the speed of things are going with this um with this crisis, with the, with the disease crisis, um, it's really hard to feel confident in any prediction or projection that you're making, even like a Or that like an election will even yeah. happen. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Well, well. that cheery <laughs> note, that's, that's enough for today. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> okay, so we're gonna move into our themes and trends section. I have never been a big white wine person and especially not in the fall, but after becoming a member of First Leaf, I'm a convert. First Leaf knew exactly what types of whites to send me that felt familiar and delicious and would get me excited about trying something new. I love First Leaf because they make it easy to get personalized wine delivered on my schedule right to my door. Since I choose the day that my shipment comes, I'm never stressing out about missing a delivery. And every selection is backed by First Leaf's 100% satisfaction guarantee. I love how I just have to answer a few questions and they just know what I'll like. No more zoning out in the store looking at 100 different bottles and trying to pick the right one. Give your palate what it really wants with First Leaf. Go to tryfirstleaf.com drilled to sign up and you'll get your first six hand curated bottles for just $44.95. That's T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F.com slash drilled. Tryfirstleaf.com slash drilled. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent. You throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. 
Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40, 40%. 40%. drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash drilled. We wanted to talk to you about something that we've talked about a couple times on the show, but really wanted to get your input on it. And that is just how the climate media landscape has been changing, especially in the last year or two. Um, so, you know, we had NPR and Bloomberg both expanding their climate coverage desks, um, like an explosion of climate newsletters. So you have Heated, Exxon News, Eric Holdhouse at The Correspondent, and now Bill McKibben's uh, climate newsletter at the New Yorker. David, were you were you uh, tempted to start a climate newsletter at any point in there? <laughs> There's still time. <laughs> I did think about it at some point, but um, didn't I didn't act fast enough. Of all of those um, developments, I actually think that the most consequential one is the Bloomberg um, expansion. Um, I just think like you know, I. I'm sure most of my readers, I'm sure, are like members of the choir. So I don't want to like diminish like preaching to the choir, but I do think that there is something actually much more significant about an operation like Bloomberg's, which is basically publishing to a different kind of reader who has a very different perspective on climate, nevertheless being as aggressive about presenting the state of play and the urgency of the crisis as they have done. Um, and I think you know, thinking beyond the media landscape, you know, I do really think like the movement that we're seeing in the um, financial and corporate worlds is really, or we were seeing before coronavirus changed everything, was really significant. It was, you know, no, basically no company is moving at the speed that they need to. And most of their commitments are empty and rhetorical gestures at best. And yet, like, 12 or 18 months ago, like even that would have been completely unthinkable. And the fact that all of those, um, you know, from BlackRock to Microsoft to Delta to, you know, whatever, all of those people are, are talking about climate change now is, I think it means that we're really in a different place than we were a year or two ago. Um, you know, and it's not just because of corporate momentum, it's because of the, you know, it's because of the protests and it's because of public opinion moving, it's because of extreme weather and all that. But I do think that, um, you know, I do, I do think that like the the movement of the of the Davos sphere on this point is a really significant development. I don't know in the end like how productive it will be, but it does seem like it really does change the shape of the landscape. Um, and yeah, who knows where it leads? But it it is it does seem really significant to me. And the Bloomberg journalistic expansion seems like a, a big part of that. Yeah. Yeah. If like we were to build a time machine and go back to 2016, 2017, whenever you were about to write Uninhabitable Earth and doing your media analysis then and told you what the media landscape looked like for climate now, how surprised would you be? Pretty surprised. I mean, you know, I, I, um, I, I, I guess I have this inclination. I'm not sure exactly what it comes from. Some mix of like, um, acculturation and you know, the era in which I was raised and whatever. But I, I guess I tend to think that like, 
things can't change that quickly. I tend to think that like the world as it is, is pretty stable and static. Um, and even if it is brutal and cruel, that those brutalities and cruelties are likely to continue even against the protests of people who are fighting them. And I do think that that's sort of like a, um, I mean, that in a lot of ways, the last few years have shown us just how foolish that assumption really is. And I mean, I felt that way very powerfully watching the year of climate protests um, that have unfolded um, really since I, since I published my book. I mean, it started a little bit before then, but, um, you know, the, that was a level of public agitation that I didn't think was possible when I'd written my book. Um, and now I'm like, how, how naive? I thought I was being like cynical, but actually I was being naive. Um, or maybe those are kind of the same thing um, uh, in, in not expecting much politically to change it. And you look at, you know, I mentioned a minute ago, Joe Biden. Joe Biden is like understood by many people in the climate community to be like hopelessly backward on, um, on climate issues. And judged by some of the other candidates who are running for president, he absolutely is. But judged by the standard of Hillary in 2016 or by the Obama administration, like he is actually way, way, way more aggressive and ambitious. And, um, you know, that kind of movement is it's almost like dizzying, even if it's also totally inadequate. Um, and I think that's true of journalism, too. We've, yeah. we've like, you know, The New York Times has a whole climate desk. Um, we're seeing, you know, like. You, you know, um, apologies to your your favorite cable news, but uh, like we're seeing a lot more cable news coverage of it, even if it's not great and even if it's not as um, responsible as we'd want. Um, all of these things are like really remarkable developments. Like in our politics, um, it's not nearly enough, but nevertheless, it surprised me personally. And then, you know, I hate to keep bringing this back to coronavirus, which um, since we're supposed to be talking about climate, but no, we, we should. I felt this really profoundly over the last few weeks which is like, you know, you heard, you hear so much from the world's most powerful people when talking to them about climate. That's like, well, that kind of plan is, um, that's never going to happen. Um, right. These things, change. you know, these markets are going to move that quickly. We can't possibly like, um, you know, evict these people from their positions of power. Like all of those, you know, we have to work with these um, corporations, these fossil fuel companies, like we can't work against them. And, you know, I always went along thinking basically like there was some moral failing in that perspective, but it also struck me on, on some level a, a practical like uh, approach to the world to like try to cultivate the um, support and sympathy of powerful people rather than thinking you could only make progress by unseating them. And yet like the whole world has literally been turned upside down over the course of the last couple months. Um, we are now, we're now in an environment where, I mean, Amy, you made reference to this a few minutes ago, but, you know, Mitt Romney is basically proposing a, a universal basic income, nationalizing all of these airline companies. Um, and, you know, I, in the end, actually, I think it's not going to be like, the, the, I, I actually don't think it's going to be the case that Republicans have like outflanked Democrats on this. But the fact that they're even talking about that, those possibilities, or that those um, are, you know, that that's part of the part of the conversation anywhere but the fringe left is astounding and tells us and if we ever thought anything was permanent and immovable about our politics and our society this experience teaches us that that is 
that was total delusion, a collective desire to protect the status quo. And when we're facing something that we see genuinely as a near-term urgent existential threat, everything comes up, you know, is up for is up for debate. Um, where we land, I think, remains a huge open question um, on this. Like, I, I'm I'm quite worried. Just thinking about the economic impacts for a second, like in 2009, the people who could afford to buy distressed assets were the rich, which meant that like they used the recession to exacerbate income inequality. I think something quite likely is um, going to happen with this economic recession. Um, on climate issues, we've already seen China um, relaxing their environmental standards in an effort to recover more quickly from their relatively short um, economic setback. And I feel we're, we're going to see something similar across the West. Um, if not relaxing existing environmental standards, then a slowing down of progress um, on, you know, on, on climate policy generally. Um, you've, I've seen a lot of people on the climate left saying this basically like this is our chance, like the, the world of opportunities is now open, like the whole spectrum is much wider. We can get a lot done and we have to make sure that whatever stimulus or recovery policies are put into place are essentially climate policies. And yeah. That is m- what I would like to see happen. But I also don't at all think that it's inevitable. I know. My concern is that it'll be like, that basically this becomes the big excuse for like, we can't spend money on anything else and we can't um, impose like radical change in any other way. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I'm worried about it. Yeah. Um, and you, I mean, you see this, you know, when you, if you look at the, the public opinion polls about concern about climate, um, you know, it was quite high in uh, 2005, 2000, you know, six, 2007, um, you know, Hurricane Katrina and the Inconvenient Truth really did make a difference to American concern about env- the environment. It wasn't nearly as high as it should be. And, you know, but it was, it was moving in the right direction. Right. And then it had a big setback because of the recession and people just were like, we'll worry about that later. Exactly. Um, when these sort of very immediate concerns come up, climate doesn't tend to like, you know, stay top of mind in general. Um, I mean, I think we are in a slightly different place now in that more people understand how interconnected all of these things are. Um, and more people do understand that like climate is not just one issue alongside a lot of others, but sort of the environment in which, so to speak, in which all of these other issues are being conducted. But nevertheless, I think it's quite, um, yeah, quite, quite worrying and quite concerning that, um, I mean, for instance, like COP26 is almost certain to be postponed. Like, um, that's just on some level, like a, a small part of the story, but it's quite representative. Like that was supposed to be a really significant, um, event in global climate policy. And we don't know when it's going to take place now. Yeah, but it, it's been failing for the past few years. So like, honestly, yeah. after last year, I think on our show, we were kind of like, just make that shit a Zoom call. And- we did, in I- fact, I- recommend that it become a Zoom, <laughs> which <laughs> they could still do. Right. It actually might be less of a shit show. But speaking of, of Corona, I think um, what's interesting about going through this moment as someone who's climate conscious is that you can't help but look at Corona without thinking about climate at the same time. Um, because honestly, once you see climate, you can't see anything without seeing it. So just like as human beings, I think all three of us are in the hardest hit states. I'm in the Bronx. I'm in New York City. David, you're in New York too, right? Yeah. I mean, at the moment, I'm on Long Island. Yeah. Yeah. 
sort of fled the city a little bit. Yeah. Um, and Amy's out in California. How are y'all dealing with the quarantine? Um, I, you know, I'm having like a weird, uh, I'm having a weird sort of like anxiety response where I basically am like extremely tired all day and then wide awake until like three or 4 a.m. <laughs> it's it's yeah. super frustrating and annoying. And, um, and I don't know, I just also am like, I feel like um, it's just, it's hard to plan anything, you know, yeah. like um, my husband and I were in the process of like considering a move, for example, which is like, it's, it's like kind of can't even really talk about it because we just don't know what's going to happen in the next two weeks or the next month or the next two months. And, you know, it's sort of, yeah, I don't know. And then I'm far away from my mom and my brother and I'm concerned about both of them. So that's a worry too. And I've got my kids home and I'm trying not to freak them out. And yeah. So yeah. I don't know. How about you? I keep stockpiling coconut water for some strange reason. And hydrate, doing, no. yeah. And doing obsessive skincare. <laughs> and I am just extremely anxious. I keep like checking the news to see if there's any sort of concrete information about how long this is going to last. And at this point, I think I could survive three months. After three months, I think I, I will probably literally lose my mind. Um, and yeah, I, I need this to, I need it to end. <laughs> what about you, David? It's interesting to, it's just to think about, like, I, rem- I don't remember where I heard it. It was on some podcast I was listening to recently, but someone floated the idea that one of the, one of the many, obviously there are many explanations, but one of the many explanations for why um, the real left declined in America over the course of um, the sort of second half of the 20th century um, was because of the changing dynamics of um, of city life and suburban life in the sense that like um, at the moment now, many cities in the U.S. are, um, are like extremely expensive, full of wealthy, you know, wealthy people. And um, those people who might otherwise form the basis of real political resistance are now atomized in a much more profound way, um, living in environments in which they are disaggregated and pushed away from one another. And it's, it's a sort of, of all the things to be worrying about with coronavirus, like the fact that we're all just living in our apartments alone um, is, and it's the political consequences of that are like very far down the list, but it does make me wonder like, you know, just what it will mean to our spirit of solidarity and what is politically possible for us to yeah. be, um, you know, yeah. literally living in quarantine. Um, yeah. yeah. In isolation. I'm really, really, really worried about that, especially as far as the climate movement goes. Um, because I think the thing that really got going for the climate movement over the past couple of years was that uh, it was in person. Um, it was a community and you like suddenly didn't feel alone, like you went to strikes and you got to like be part of something. Um, and now if the thing is I can't come within six feet of another human being. Yeah. Which, <laughs> like, how do you keep that momentum going? Like if I could if I were to like go to a lab and create something to like, you know, deflate the climate movement, it would be something that would make us not be able to touch one another. Um, and especially in a time where even if, you know, even just to survive climate change, period, we're going to need to be able to come together. We're going to need to be able to be empathetic to one another. And now we're in a position where we actually have to walk away from people. 
that's heartbreaking. Yeah, and then if you imagine a kind of optimistic scenario where we implement such a dramatic um, and expansive medical testing regimen that it's practically a kind of medical surveillance state, um, it also complicates the idea, you know, do that quickly enough that we could sort of leave our homes and mostly go about um, our lives as they were if subjecting ourselves a few times a day to, to temperature checks or whatever, like they've done in South Korea. Um, that's on some level, that's like the most optimistic future because it would mean within the space of three or four weeks, we could mostly return to our normal ways of life. On the other hand, um, that kind of a system is, um, you know, bound to be abused by um, forces that don't want to see large protest movements. I mean, we're already seeing like ICE claiming um, new powers in, you know, a state of, of health emergency than they had before. Um, mm. And, yeah. the, you know, it's, and even beyond what, abuses may be enacted in, in that context but, you know it's just it's a, a very different dynamic we're living in a few, a few months ago yeah and, yeah. and I, especially like i was thinking about that too in terms of uh the growing like there's been a big push to um you know get these sort of anti-riot laws on the books to criminalize protest in various ways and i mean i think it's 17 states have enacted them now 34 are considering these laws um mostly they were like a reaction to pipeline protests but like i don't know i'm just kind of like oh god you know all we needed to make protests even less you know palatable (laughs) was was this um and it you know just becomes another good reason to crack down on it which is yeah i don't know it's it's scary yeah, that um, there was a piece in The Guardian by Jillian Ambrose about the coronavirus posing a threat to climate action um, from the um, like based on a conversation with someone, the IEA, which I don't actually know what that stands for in the article didn't say it was an international energy agency. I'm just going to guess. Yeah, it's basically saying that this could slow down the energy transitions just because all these stimulus packages are being passed. And so many of these stimulus packages include rolling back environmental protections and propping up the fossil fuel industry and the aviation industry. And it's just so disheartening. It's also going to depress oil prices, which tends to make consumption go up. I mean, there's a I I think like this sort of. I've seen a, a sort of broad tendency to to celebrate emissions reductions and like clean air and stuff like that. And it's like, we don't really want to achieve that by like making a bunch of people deathly ill. Um, and I, I'm very concerned about how much that sort of take on things really um, emphasizes individual action it's like like i keep seeing people be like look look how we can change our behavior and i'm like yeah because that behavior change is being enabled in various ways and benefits many many um you know industries and and whatnot and the economy at large and whatever like the the um the idea that that is somehow going to lead to massive climate action just doesn't make sense to me you know and like um and I don't know. I just I think the 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 more realistic prob like the the more probable <laughs> outcome is that we ha- you know we've already got these massive bailouts for the airline and natural gas industries, oil and gas industry in general, and then um, 
you know, we're, we're going to have to spend a lot of money on, you know, keeping people afloat and um, helping people pay rent and all that kind of stuff. And I think you're going to have this sort of twofold thing of, you know, we've just spent a bunch of money to bail out natural gas and we don't have any more money to spend on renewable energy transition. Um, I, I don't I don't think that this is like a good story for climate in general, but I'm also, you know. Oh, my God, it's definitely it's a horrible story. Like there are better ways to reduce emissions like we yeah. put forth those solutions over and over again. If I, I just don't understand this tendency to be like, we're all going to die. Yay. <laughs> And there has been a lot of good writing about coronavirus and climate change. Mm -hmm. um, David, you did a pretty good piece in New York Magazine um, about pretty good, this. Pretty good. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a great piece. It's not no, it's the one really that we're going to talk about later is my favorite that David's written recently. Um, so, but yeah, in your research about this and like covering at New York Magazine, what are some of the themes that you're seeing vis-a-vis -vis climate? I don't know. I mean, on some level, I was saying this to Amy um, before we started recording, but on some level, I'm, I feel strangely overwhelmed as someone who has spent the last few years really purposely focused on the job of like contemplating worst case scenarios to be faced with um, with this particular story. And I'm I, I, I really have I really haven't been able to get a sense of the full scope of it. Um, but, you know, the things that jump out at me is sort of, you know, they're sort of parallels and then they're sort of discontinuities. Um, you know, one thing is like, I think that one big lesson of, of coronavirus um, and climate change share is we don't live outside of nature. We are vulnerable to nature um, as, as modern and protected as we may fancy ourselves being. Um, everything that we do on this planet is subject to um, the whims of the natural world, and those can be those can be punishing. They can be bountiful. That you know, they can the natural world provides us with a lot of abundance. Um, but when when things are bad, they can be overwhelmingly bad, really beyond our capacity to respond. And that is just not, you know, that's not like the cultural lesson that we've been taught about our relationship to nature over the past generation in, in places like the U.S. Um, and I think both of these stories are teaching us, teaching it to us very um, powerfully. Um, another thing I see as a sort of similar lesson from each of them is that um, alarmism is valuable. Um, you know, if we had really freaked out, if China had really freaked out when they um, first, like, un, you know, uncovered this virus, um, there's a piece out yesterday saying, you know, like they could have spared ninety, they could have avoided ninety-five percent of the deaths that they had, and possibly figured out a way to keep it from spreading through the world. Um, but instead, they sort of didn't want to make a big deal out of it. They sort of hid it for a little while, so that when they finally started talking about it on the in a public global way the cat was sort of already out of the bag and then when you look at particular other nations and how they responded you know we, we all know the u.s response best you know there was actually a fair amount of time between the time that we knew about this disease emerging in china and the time in which it really um started to move policy making across the countries of the west and the reason that we that 
you know, the reason that Italy and Spain and the U.S. and Iran, um, all of these countries um, have done so poorly is that they didn't move quickly enough or dramatically enough. And it's possible that if we had all done exactly what South Korea did or something, or Singapore, there would be problems with that approach. Maybe it would involve political overreach. Maybe in retrospect, it would seem an overreaction or something. But I think all of us would rather be living in South Korea now than in the U.S. Um, And that tells us about the value of fast, dramatic action um, built on the precautionary principle. And, um, you know, it's just a reminder as, you know, as climate should be every day, that if we wait until we're absolutely sure that we need to do something to protect ourselves, probably it's going to be too late to actually protect ourselves and that we need to be moving much more quickly and responding with, un, you know, incomplete knowledge or uncertainty, not by just assuming the best outcomes, but preparing for the worst outcomes. Um, I think that's like, that's, that's really a valuable lesson um, here in general. And then the point I made in, in a piece um, I wrote a few weeks ago about, about the sort of common lessons was really like, adaptation isn't enough. You know, that like, um, we can be taking the most aggressive actions all around the world to protect us from this disease. Some parts of the world are doing quite a good job. Others like the U.S. are failing. Um, but we could theoretically be on a quote unquote war footing globally to deal with coronavirus. And yet, obviously, it would have been better if we didn't have to deal with that problem at all in the first place. So for those people who talk about climate change and say, oh, we'll figure out a way to deal with two degrees or three degrees of warming, we'll figure it out. We're in an in, you know, adaptive, resilient um, species. I actually agree. I think we are adaptive and resilient. But if we're, resp- if we're adapting to a world that is defined by as much suffering as we now know to expect at two or three degrees, um, that will, at the very least, test our capacity um, to adapt and probably um, you know, break us and produce an enormous, even unprecedented amount of human suffering along the way. And I think coronavirus teaches us that too, that like way better to just, you know, way better to um, nip the thing in the bud, um, minimize the threat that we're dealing with and the challenge we're dealing with, rather than assume that we can sort of respond on the back end in a way that protects us. Um, because as we're seeing now, like we, you simply can't, you simply can't get ahead of these kinds of things if you start out behind. Yeah, a lot of those themes that you just mentioned also kind of came up in this uh, other piece in the New York Times by um, Samini Sengupta. Um, climate change has lessons for fighting coronavirus. Um, another uh, theme that I can't help but notice, and maybe this is, I know the research around it is changing a lot, but I think about how much worse this might have been had we had a colder winter. Um and I worry about the pandemics that will be unleashed in the future that actually are more adaptive to hot weather than they are to cold weather. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. That's just something I worry about a lot. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's funny. I've gotten like a lot of like interview requests and that kind of thing from people who are like, can we talk about the connection between coronavirus and climate? And it's like the connections are, are sort of you know, there, there's probably some impact, but it's it's not quite clear what, what you'd really say. But big picture, you know, the devastation of stable ecosystems, the scrambling of the planet's natural, um, you know, natural boundaries um, and the radical like remixing of um, the order of life on the planet 
is bound to produce many more really challenging diseases, if not exactly like this, then, um, you know, in then still in ways that should terrify us. So yeah, exactly. You know, the um, they're just like among many things that climate change promises is is a is a you know global public health um, challenge. Yeah. Um, the other parallel is the way that people are responding to it, namely the rich. Um, I've seen a lot of stuff about like rich people just basically running to their bunkers and waiting it out, and uh, magically all the celebrities can get tests for it, even if they don't have any symptoms or any sort of contact with anyone. Like they're flying off to New Zealand with their private medical concierge, and um, it's and the rest of us are just really left to fend for ourselves. Um, and that's another response you see a lot with climate of people like, oh, I'm just going to move to New Zealand or it's just not going to be my problem. Um, and you probably know where I'm going with this, David. I would love to get you to read from uh, a piece that you wrote back in December um, titled, We're Getting a Clearer Picture of the Climate Future and It's Not as Bad as It Once Looked. Yeah, this is a sort of an interesting piece in that mostly it was it was sort of presenting some good news about uh about what we're likely to see going down the road, but it had this sort of really bleak conclusion, which is the part that you're asking me to read. But over the last few weeks, I've been thinking more about another encounter from earlier this fall, one that followed a climate panel I just participated in. After the discussion, I was cornered by a middle-aged businessman who assured me that despite what I might think, he did believe in climate change, then asked in an almost conspiratorial tone, seeking it seemed a kind of secret answer, how bad is it going to be? It was a bit of a confusing question after 90 minutes of conversation on stage, a conversation he'd chosen to attend and paid attention to, presumably, he pointed out, which he suggested was a self-evident sign that he took the issue seriously. Well, I began at just two degrees of warming, which is basically a best case scenario. It's been estimated that 150 million people would die from air pollution. But out of 8 billion, he said quickly cutting me off and smiling, strangely. Right, I said, I don't think human extinction or total civilizational collapse is likely, but the pressures are going to get pretty intense, and we don't really know how societies will respond. But even if they respond pretty well, I mean, 150 million is 150 million. That's a lot of people. That's dying at the scale of 25 holocausts. But out of 8 billion, he repeated, smiling like he caught me in a trap. At which point I understood what he'd actually meant by the question he'd posed and why it was so important to him to get a precise answer. What he was asking was not, how bad is it gonna be? What he was asking was, how bad is it gonna be for me? Yeah, um, so that was one of the creepiest things I've read recently. <laughs> But don't you guys encounter this kind of thing a lot? Like people who, who ask you, you know, having read a story or having seen you speak, they, they'll come up to Maybe I'm, I have a different audience or whatever. They come up to you and they'll be like, so where should I move? This is like one of the most common questions I get. I have, I have people ask me that all the time. You know, which, which parts of the world are like, you know, basically like climate proof. And then, um, and then, yeah, like, I don't know. Like, well, what, like, you know, what are the, like, people will try to sort of argue like, well, okay, like a, you know, four feet of sea level rise. I mean, that still leaves like a lot of California and Florida left, you know? And I'm like, I just feel like that sort of thinking is so weird, but yeah. 
Yeah. I think for me, because of the way I talk about it, like I talk about it as a justice issue and I never really dig into like, this is what happens at this level of warming or whatever, like you two kind of do um, as journalists. So I don't think people ask me those sorts of questions. They did used to ask me that before I became a public climate person, which was when I was basically just editing uh, wonky reports on climate and people in my own life would like come to me and ask me where should I move or whatever. Or, like, like insider trading for climate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. Right. And these were the same people who like we talked about this on a previous show, but like thought I was hysterical until they read The Uninhabitable Earth. And it was like, really, like, you don't trust me. Um, but anyway. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I find that question to be like so obsolete at this point. And that's why this passage here made me so creeped out, David, because that person who had this conversation with you would never really talk to me, I don't think. And definitely wouldn't say that to me. Yeah. Well, you know, you saw, I don't know if you guys saw, but um, was it a senator or a congressman yesterday was talking about how, like, well, we really need to think about the 97 to 99% of Americans who are going to survive coronavirus. It's like... Whoa. Uh, <laughs> this is, I mean, this is like a public matter of public record of a, of a public official that's, like, absolutely horrifying. Yeah. Um, you know, on the other hand, there is a part of me that as, as objectionable as it is on a moral basis, like, I also understand it on a human level, you know, like, I, I mean, for instance, like, I'm, I did leave New York City. Um, mm -hmm. I like, was really uncomfortable in New York. Um, yeah. Not because I thought like, the hospitals are going to overrun, be, become overrun or anything like that, because I think the hospitals are going to be overrun everywhere. But um, there was something really oppressive about being in a small apartment with a toddler and feeling like, um, all I had was this tiny amount of space to move around in. And so my wife and I, you know, rented a, a house on Long Island where we have at least a yard. And like, that's an exercise of privilege in the face of, um, of this coronavirus threat. Um, it may not ultimately protect us, um, but it feels emotionally actually a lot better and more comfortable. Um, and at the same time, I think I'm basically running away, and that's an act of cowardice and also a bit of a, um, a you know, a, a decision that runs a little bit against the sort of response I have to people who ask about where they should move when they, you know, to deal with climate change. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of all mixed up about it. I think it's, it is, I think it's hard to dismiss that impulse. I think we all probably have it at some level to protect ourselves and the ones that we love. But we also have to try to remember that, like, um, we can't let that impulse get in the way of um, our sense of shared fate and um, responsibility towards one another. Yeah. I mean, what were you supposed to do? Stay in the city and, like, punch the virus in the face? Yeah. Like, come on. I guess fair point. But, um, you know, I, there, I know people who are like, I'm, I'm you know, I'm um, going shopping for my elderly neighbors and... Um, you know, I know a lot of people who work on the, you know, they're not like, um, uh, they're not pulmonologists working in the ICU, but who are wor working at various levels or various places in the health system who are like, I'm not going to leave because I think I'm going to be called into action here. And I, and I need to be there for that. Um, and I, you know, I, th th those people are, um, you know, doing incredibly noble, also, I would say terrifying work. Um, but that's a that's a, on some level a more responsible choice than the choice that I'm making to like do my journalism remotely from um, a house with a yard, you know. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think, you know, in a situation like this, you do what you have to do. And um, I wouldn't be too hard on yourself um, or anyone else listening to this who decided to protect their family. Um, so one of the things I'm finding interesting um, is the rise of ecofascism, both as a trend in real life. Like, OK, I don't find that interesting. I find that fucking terrifying. Um, but it does seem like we're finally starting to talk about it more explicitly in the climate conversation, which to me is actually encouraging. Yeah. There was a piece in uh, The Breakthrough um, called The Coming Avocado Politics. Um, there was another piece in The New York Times, White Supremacy Goes Green by Beth Gardner. Um, and there was another one that's not specifically ecofascism, um, but it's about uh, the migrants in Greece. Um, called the Vigilantes in Greece Say No More to Migrants. Um, and basically what they were talking about there is like there's been this steady stream of migrants coming from nations in distress. Um, and the people there had at one point won a, um, a Nobel Peace Prize for how welcoming they had been to these migrants. And now they're basically becoming armed vigilantes shooting migrants on site and beating up anyone that they think has helped them. And it, it just goes to show how far empathy can be exhausted and, yeah, kind of manipulate it. Yeah, it seems, it seems um, probably like the paramount challenge um, in the political realm going forward is um, yeah. trying to secure whatever kind of humane politics or what shred of humane politics we can in the face of some of this damage. I feel like it's the natural like um next step of like the guy at the panel saying like you know kind of being worried about how it's going to affect him personally right like as there are fewer and fewer resources and more people competing for them you know some people will like you know kind of feel that higher calling to be good community members and some people will um will prioritize their own um, their own stuff. I, I don't know. I feel like America's entire history is about prioritizing individual success over everything else. So I, I don't know. I don't feel super positive about uh, this country's approach on these things. There are very few countries in the world who are moving in the direction of more openness and empathy. I mean, there are countries who have been remarkably open and, and empathic, who are becoming slightly less so, and still by the standards of America are are doing good but they're all moving in the wrong direction um and you know i I think of it like there is this sort of the challenge to our politics produced by climate change which is that this challenge of like um not just eco-fascism but stuff that's sort of short of that but still like just eco-nationalism um and but there's also the way in which this phenomenon complicates our crusade for action on climate in the sense that not just like we need a global solution to a global global problem we can't really deal with so many um so much resistance from nationalistic um, leaders but even beyond that like i think it's been the one of the basic assumptions of the climate movement um in the u.s especially but really throughout the world that if people saw the science they would endorse action of the kind that I think the three of us um, would want to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the problem was that not enough people had seen the science or trusted the science um, or had a picture of the science. 
And that like ultimately the challenge was communicating the threat so that they would then take these inevitable political steps. But if it's the case that as with everything else in our culture, we're processing the challenge of climate change through our tribal partisan identities, it starts to make it seem a lot harder to achieve anything that's really meaningful, you know, that really moves the needle meaningfully on on climate policy, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's interesting because that's kind of what Beth Gardner got into in her piece on uh, White Supremacy Goes Green about how surprised she was, like how she had always thought that once it was time for climate action, it would be progressive climate action, surely. Um, And so then she's like coming awake to ecofascism and being like, oh, wait, maybe it's not. Maybe it could go in this really, really dark direction. Um, And I got to say, like, I, I mean, I... I did appreciate this article, but I find that frustrating um, that people would automatically think that action is going to be benevolent. Um, (laughs) Because to me, that just seems so obviously, like, clearly it's not. People are cruel. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like once people found out slavery was wrong and unsustainable, they went to an egalitarian society. Yes. You know, like, I don't know why we would expect that. Well, it's, you know, it's an argument against these sort of concern troll, centrist concern trolls who will tell you, like, what we need to do is, like, to depoliticize climate or departisanize climate. And you're like, yeah, no, no, like, like, it's just, it's like a war that we have to win. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's it's already political. Like, if if we retreat from that fight, like, we're just gonna lose it. Right, exactly. On the other hand, I, I like, you know, I still think it's good to, like, you know, share the bad news. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it's good to get more people to see the impacts than less. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, um, who knows? I don't know how many more, you know, Scott Morrison's and Jared Bolsonaro's and Donald Trump's we can really yeah. tolerate. Yeah. Yeah. Don't all three of them have Corona at this point? I hope so. Yeah. Boy, that would be a real mitzvah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Sorry, but it's true. I'm looking at Donald Trump for like five years thinking that he wasn't possibly going to make it out of that calendar year. No, he's like the most unhealthy person, but somehow he just keeps going. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. Runs on, runs on rage. Okay, now we're going to get into our listener question. We're just going to do one for this episode. Um, And this question um, is about climate action. So um, she asks, what is the best way to get involved and make a change? How do you reach, quote, normal people who live in this illusory world that somehow government will fix it all, that we need to trust the market, and that advertising is not making you want stuff you don't need or change your social structure? Do you need to reach these people? Can you take action that is visible, that catches the eye of others and wants them to participate or do something similar? How do I muster the energy to do any of that? I'm already exhausted working and doing the PhD. I also have an RA, so yeah. Or maybe by doing something, I'll actually find the energy. Do you want to give us your hot take, David, on what is the best way to get involved and make a change? If like for someone who, you know, this person was sort of struggling with like, 
should I try to convince people that don't believe in climate change or should I focus on this and you know, whatever. Um, what's like, what's an effective way to spend your energy if you want to do something? Well, I think it's sort of vague, but I would say, first of all, like the best path forward is to try to push for political change. And to the extent that you're trying to um, mobilize those around you to engage in the same project, it's actually kind of, from my point of view, um, a waste of energy to, um, to focus on people who don't believe or are skeptical and much more effective to try to push those people who are aware of it and maybe a little worried, but aren't quite worried enough to, um, to sort of really look in the, you know, really take seriously the, the, the threat and what's necessary and responds um, as the science demands. I think those people are, in my experience, certainly, I mean, I use, I'm one of those people um, who make the transition. I think those people are much more movable than um, those who are sort of sitting in their hardened positions of, of um, reflective skepticism. Yeah, I agree. Right. I feel that way too. And I, I just, I always tell people that they should um, like do the things they're already good at and already have like influence over you know what I mean it's like there's yeah. no sense in you like this person's doing a PhD and whatever it's like like you know I don't think that you need to go off and become like a science expert or um you know yeah. a local politician or whatever it's like do do the things that you have the skills to do you know um, right and like influence the people that you can influence you know yeah yeah I, I'm a little frustrated because I have a piece coming out about this. Um, and oh, it, got, yes! it was supposed to come out this week, but it got pushed back because of, of course, Corona. Um, uh, it's the but, perfect answer yeah. to this question. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but my general opinion on it is that there you're not limited to just one thing. Um, and that do what you're good at and do your best. Um, because climate is an all-encompassing problem. So therefore, all the solutions are all-encompassing. So, you know, if you're good at making noise, make noise. If you're good at writing, write. If you're good at organizing, organize. Like, figure out where you can make the most impact. And that's where you, that's where you work. That's where you live. Um, I also think that there's this sort of, like, idea that someone, like, I think climate is like this unprecedented problem and therefore no one else can tell you exactly what your climate action needs to be, right? Nobody told Greta to strike, <laughs> you know? Nobody told these kids to start forming their movement. They just did it. And you don't, if you're gonna be like a climate person, then you've gotta start to like take on that sort of creative uh, necessity to figure out what you're gonna do. All right, so now we're going to move into stand-up pieces, which are just something that we loved <laughs> from the past, like, couple of months or so. Um, and as David, as our guest, you get to go first. Well, I, I picked a kind of a, um, a, a piece of writing that is not exactly a piece. It's a Twitter thread that was posted by um, Harvard um, scientist named Eric Feigolding about coronavirus. It was really the first um, the first thing that broke through to me um, in this story as a real harrowing, eye-opening, like grab you by the collar um, kind of um, writing. And he was basically um, representing findings from a pre-publication paper on what had happened in Wuhan and in particular, 
about the reproducibility or like the infectiousness of the of the disease, which suggested some quite harrowing futures, not just for China, but for the rest of the world. And, um, you know, this was, he was working off of scientific, um, a scientific paper. He was quoting from it throughout. And so there was some technical language, but he was also writing it through with a kind of like, holy shit. I think he maybe even has said, holy shit, literally. Um, I've never seen numbers like this in all of my research. Um, this disease is going to be um, a pandemic beyond anything that we've seen in recent memory. And we are completely unprepared for its impact. And in response, he was really, and this is the, this is the thing that makes it really notable to me. I mean, I think it's, it, it was sort of interesting and vivid and, you know, got passed around a huge amount and raised some real alarm about it. But what was really notable to me about, um, about it was that it immediately produced a really significant backlash among um, epidemiologists and um, other people who work with um, sort of disease data who found some of his analysis um, or the extrapolation of the paper's analysis into sort of a Twitter format, um, a little overstated, thought that his warnings were um, a little too bleak. Um, but even if their corrections were on the margins, their rebuke was sort of total. And they were saying, like, this is irresponsible. This kind of fear mongering on Twitter, on social media, is not what a pedigreed, qualified um, scientist should be doing. And, you know, there was a there was a big piece about it in The Atlantic that was headlined something like this is how misinformation spreads on Twitter. Um, Feigelding like deleted the tweet, the Twitter thread, actually, like it only now exists um, in a few places where it was preserved at the time to read, you know, not as a Twitter thread, but off Twitter. Um, and, you know, he didn't get everything right. But as a correction to what had been the incredibly limited, quiet coverage of the story to that point, and as a sort of like directional guide to like, this is basically how we should be thinking about this disease. Um, he's, he was certainly more right than anybody else who was writing at the time. And if he had been, if he had had the ear of say Donald Trump or, you know, Emmanuel Macron or whoever, um, or Boris Johnson, um, we would be in a much, much, much better place. And I think this is like, it's obviously connected to my experience as a sort of um, alarmist on climate change. But I think just in general, we are in this really weird place where I think we've sort of like overlearned the experience of like, Churchill and England during the Blitz and like keep calm and carry on is like this, like understood to be this in all situations, um, noble model for human behavior. And it just isn't like most times in a crisis, you want to move fast and you want to move aggressively. And even if taking that lesson to heart, means that sometimes you respond to what you think is a crisis, but turns out to be a slightly smaller crisis, or maybe even not a crisis at all. Like, that's just what it means to be careful and responsible. And in the case of impacts like climate change and the coronavirus, moral, because what's at stake is um, human life and human suffering. 
at unbelievably large scales so that you know even moderate improvements in how quickly we we take action are going to have huge pay off huge dividends down the line and in this case in particular it's like what's the downside to panicking about this disease like sure it's right. it's imposing we might add too much like anxiety and you know um emo- like psychological emotional burden on on all of us to be living anxiously and yet especially during the period when not just the american government but all the governments outside of um outside of asia were not doing anything and not giving any directives about how we should be behaving we collectively have been behaving much more responsibly the more worried we were because if we were freaking out about coronavirus we were going to be washing our hands more we were going to be uncomfortable standing around people we were going to be uncomfortable if someone near us started coughing and like especially in the vacuum of leadership that we saw um you know like from the from from Trump and on down in, in in American government theoretically the only thing that would have made Americans behave more responsibly was more panic and so the 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 impulse to like wag wag our finger at people who are trying to raise alarm simply because what they're saying is alarming i think is really a real kind of deep dysfunction about um about our culture generally and we saw it um we saw it in particular in this twitter thread i think we've seen it generally in the corona response and we've been seeing it now all three of us and probably all of our listeners um on climate for for decades now i also just feel like really bad for this guy he was like he sort of had a reputation like thrown in the toilet yeah and you know like again like some of those numbers turned out not to be exactly right but like it it was it certainly is proving not to be the kind of professional malpractice that he was attacked for. Yeah. Um, and the interest that people have to call any kind of anything that's scary irresponsible, I think, is just is just really damaging. So my standout piece for this week uh, was published just yesterday. Um, it's called "Good Grief," and it's by Emily Atkin in the Columbia Journalism Review. Um, and I'm going to take the liberty of reading an excerpt now. Over the next two years, I fact-checked dozens of instances of climate misinformation without passing judgment on those who lied. I explained terrifying scientific studies without explicitly remarking that they were terrifying. I reported on environmental injustices perpetrated all over the country without saying that the victims deserved better. Even though I was writing for a progressive readership, my goal was to appear neutral. But I was not actually neutral because in reality, I didn't want climate change to get worse. I didn't want people to suffer. Every time I said I didn't say so, I felt like I was failing readers. In 2014, I covered a World Meteorological Organization report showing that carbon was accumulating in the atmosphere far more rapidly than expected. Once carbon concentrations reached a certain point, the report stated the subsequent warming would trigger feedback loops of further carbon release and more warming, causing unpredictable levels of suffering for the world's poorest and most vulnerable populations. We must reverse this trend, the WMO WMO secretary said. We are running out of time. It was difficult to hide my sense of alarm. I was also exasperated, a natural consequence perhaps of reporting on the willful ignorance of those tasked with solving a looming environmental crisis. Instead of preparing for climate change, state agencies were removing scientific information about it from their websites. Instead of trying to limit the damage, politicians were contriving ridiculous excuses. Global warming couldn't be all that bad, one argument went, since Mars was warming too. 
Worst of all, readers didn't seem to be paying attention. I knew my stories were about important problems, but they were rarely picked up by bigger outlets. My reporting never sparked activism campaigns or changed policy. I felt like a child drowning in a crowded beach as everyone ignored my screams for help. Was I not screaming loudly enough? So I, I love this story of Emily's journey as a storyteller on climate and basically how she went from like, wait a minute, it's not enough to be neutral. It's not enough just to present the facts without any sort of interpretation. And I think that speaks a lot to what you were just saying, David, about um, the Twitter thread that you have to sound the alarm. If the information is alarming, you have to tell people that. Otherwise, you're not actually being honest. You're not actually telling the story. That's so funny because it gets right back to what we were talking about at the beginning, this like trying to figure out how to walk that line between what's expected of you as a journalist and um, right. what you feel, I don't know, sort of compelled to say once you know the yeah. facts. <laughs> yeah. And also as like a human being who has a vested interest in, you know, living. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I think that's something to it. And she comes to in her conclusion, basically being like, I went from dispassionate to passionate and I learned how to harness my grief into rage. And, you know, I can't help but hear the echoes of your rage essay last year, Amy. And I think that, you know, it's, it's just really great to see more people taking that voice on and like owning their emotions and being honest about them. Yeah, that's been like a good change, I think, in the in the whole climate storytelling space yeah. in general. It's just people, I guess, like sort of feeling, well, A, feeling okay. Like there, I mean, there's a, for a long time, there's been a rule and I think pe some people still abide by it of like, you can't write, you know, a personal essay if you also report on the subject, you know, like that. Yeah. Actually, like I, I sat on that rage essay for a while for that reason, because I was like, oh, I don't know, you know, but, um, but I think... Yeah, I don't know. We we're starting to like allow journalists to have feelings and I don't I don't think it's bad, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's bad. Yeah. Um okay, so mine is from Rolling Stone and I have to say that I have noticed in the last few months that Rolling Stone is really kind of killing it on climate. I think they've been doing a lot of really great reporting on the subject, pretty wide variety of things. Um, you know, there was that great investigative piece on um, the, you know, cancer being caused by like <laughs> much of the, the natural gas, yeah. and oil and gas industry in general, um, the radioactive story. It was great. And then, um, I don't know, I just, I feel like almost every week or two, I'm seeing a different story from them pop up. Um, yeah, they've been great. Yeah, right. I know. I'm kind of like, who did they hire over there that's commissioning all these great stories? Um, but anyway, so uh, this one is called, Are We Thinking About Climate Migration All Wrong? And it's by Alexandra Tempest. Um, and it's really interesting because it gets into, you know, these massive numbers that we've all heard about climate migration and how, you know, expansive and intense it's going to be and all of that. And it um, kind of, you know, calls those numbers into question a bit. And initially I was kind of like, well, what harm is there in overestimating the problem, right? But then she makes this pretty interesting point that it can actually spark almost more of a, 
of this sort of, you know, eco-fascist, like anti-immigration sentiment that we were talking about before. So um, anyway, here is a, here's the excerpt from that. To be sure, the scale of the issue is planetary. People are, right now, leaving their homes due to the impacts of climate change. From tiny Pacific island nations like Kiribati and Tuvalu to Pancake Flat, Bangladesh, to the coast of Louisiana, which loses a football field of land every 100 minutes. Wow. Hmm. Climate displacement is headline news virtually every time another record-breaking hurricane makes landfall, as when nearly 400,000 Puerto Ricans came to the U.S. mainland in the months following 2017's Hurricane Maria. During the summer of 2019, a flurry of reports circulated about drought-stricken Honduran and Guatemalan coffee farmers fleeing north. But the hyper-focus by the media and well-meaning advocates on nailing down a global number of climate refugees by a specific calendar year can be problematic, conjuring images of apocalyptic invasions and fanning the flames of nationalism and xenophobia already spreading across the globe. And while these splashy predictions have a shock value that can galvanize action, they ignore nuances that could better serve public discussion and policy, like the fact that the majority of climate migrants move within their own countries, often slowly over time, and usually not very far. Advocates, academics, and international bodies alike agree that most climate migrants move within their own countries. There are well-known U.S. examples. The coastal Louisianans, termed the first American climate refugees fleeing rising seas, the indigenous Alaskan villages seeking funding to relocate inland. But this phenomenon is unfolding in every corner of the U.S. and around the world. Tourist towns in Southern California are contentiously battling over, quote, managed retreat from the coast due to rising sea levels. In Ellicott City, Maryland, a proposal to move its main street, including homes, due to increased flash nearly, nearly destroyed the community. In North Carolina, low-income residents have been pushed from their homes as flood and hurricane-damaged public housing is demolished. And it's not only a coastal concern. The tiny Missouri hamlet of Mosby is expected to lose half of its residents following massive flooding in the spring of 2019. In Wisconsin's Hmm. rural Kickapoo Valley, which pioneered the modern template of government-funded community relocation, A string of small towns has since moved entire neighborhoods to higher ground as river floods continue to break records. So anyway, this was, I thought, a a really interesting and well-researched story and sort of a counterintuitive take on the climate migration stuff that, um, that, you know, I like those kinds of stories. So I liked it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I enjoyed the story, too, especially because it, like, was a good reminder about how we talk about things really, really matters. Um, and it can fall differently um, depending on what the listener already wants to hear. Yeah. Yeah. So, totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, all right, David, thank you so much for taking the time. Okay, cool. Thanks. It was really great to talk to both of you guys and I hope to see you both soon. Thanks so much, David. All right, Amy, so you ready for another 18 months of quarantine? I don't think so. I feel like if it's 18 months, I I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I have two children and my husband at home. I've already shouted at them. I'm so sick of all of you. 
also, <laughs> also you one. have a dog week and one. like I don't know how many two cats. dogs, two dogs and a cat. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of people and animals yes. in one close proximity. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm not gonna make it 18 months. Right? <laughs> I'm not gonna make it three months. Three months. <laughs> It's my limit because you're in a house with too many people. I'm in a house with no people. Yeah, it's that's rough. me and one cat. Blue. Not gonna be able to do it. <laughs> Not gonna be able to fucking do it. Love the cat. He's great. Yeah, he's fine, but he's not fucking human. I know. I know. Three months, I'm running outside. I'm hugging the first person I see, and that's just <laughs> gonna be what it is. So <laughs> I'm just not gonna be able to do it. Uh, um, yeah. Anyway, we will. In the meantime, yeah, uh, you can make sure that you're following us on Twitter because we will be rage posting there. Yes. Um, you can find the show at, at Real Hot Take. Um, you can find me at, at Mary Hegler, and you can find Amy at, at Amy Westervelt. Yes. And big thank you to David for joining us on this episode. You can and should follow him on Twitter as well. He's at D Wallace Wells. Really Dark should be Wing at Duck. Darkwing Duck. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, Dave is going to kill us. Um, <laughs> and as a reminder, our, our, all the articles that we discussed are up on our Twitter and in our show notes. And please make sure that you send your questions to hottakes at criticalfrequency.org. That's hot takes plural. And we'll do our best. Also a reminder that if you like the show, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It does really help us reach new listeners. Yeah. Um, and we'll be back with you in about two weeks mm -hmm. uh, with a very special guest. Um, I think we've alluded in a previous episode to uh, an episode where we finally deal with this white guy question yes. with an actual expert on white guys because he's a white a guy. A white guy? Yeah. We're going to get a real live one in here who's like done the work about how to be a white guy in the climate field without being obnoxious. Yes. Um, because being a man and being a dick are two very different things. Yes, they are. <laughs> yes, they are. Um, Should we tell people for that in two weeks? Do we want to tell people Should who we? it is? Or is yeah, let's tell people yes. who it is. Okay. It's okay. Eric Holdhouse. We're going to have Eric Holdhouse on. Yeah. yeah. It means we're having two white guys in a row. We thought about this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we did. We said we were never going to yeah. do it, but uh, I think the, the time... The, the number of questions in our email inbox about yeah. this particular issue requires right. that we must. We must. And the number of questions that we don't know how to answer. Yes. Like, I, there's just a way. Yes. It must be hard. It must be real hard. Yeah. And you know what? <laughs> we appreciate that so many people care enough to want to try. So we want to give you yes, the information you need. appreciate that. To do it. And Eric yeah. is someone that is actually I feel like kind of known in the climate movement for being quite good at being an ally and yeah like, exactly um, yeah yeah so we're and has get him done the work mm -hmm. been on the journey knows what it's actually like yeah. and yeah I'm I'm looking forward to that yeah so it will be good all right in the meantime yeah. take care of each other all right bye y'all bye